Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the RF Factor, episode number 25. Pete Gagliardi here with my old colleague, George Belsky. We have a special guest tonight, Jim Ross Lightfoot, former police officer, radio man, congressman, former chairman of the House Subcommittee on Treasury Postal and general government appropriations. A long time ago, I'm not sure if cars were invented then, but we worked we worked closely together when I was at ATF and um, in legislative affairs, and and Jim was the chairman of the committee. And um, he's here tonight to talk about leadership, talk about what was important when he was in Congress what he sees today and, and, and where he thinks we need to go in the future, if anywhere. Well, welcome, George. Say hello. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, Jim, pleasure to meet you, sir. Look forward Thank to you, our George. talk. It is, is it evening or morning, George? That uh, depends where you're at. It's, <laughs> evening, it's evening by me, Pete. I'm on the left coast. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so Jim, it's been a long time, my friend. Yes, it has. I don't, I think we met when, what, we were tying our horses up, as I remember? Yeah, I think we were, I was, I was carrying the water. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so, Jim, you know, the RF factor stands for relentless follow-up. Right. And, and how important it is for a leader that, that, uh, to not only lead the way, but make sure that everybody's still still coming along uh, in in the way that uh, everybody thought uh, that they, they should be uh, executing their plans. But you know, when you were when, when you were the chairman, what, what was it like to be in Congress? And why don't you give us a, all a, a little bit of background about the years you were there and when you were the chair and what it was like back then in nineteen the mid nineteen nineties. Okay, Pete, I, uh, uh, I guess I never could hold a job. I had quite a few, uh, but the longest one I had was in broadcasting, and then I managed a, a manufacturing company and so on. And then in 1984, uh, I took a sanity test and failed it miserably and decided to run for Congress. We had an open seat coming up. I knew absolutely nothing about politics. Uh, I had been a city councilman for one term when I lived in Texas and uh, other than civic groups, 4-H and that sort of thing, uh, I didn't know anything about politics. And so we got into it and it was a real bad time in the Midwest. Banks were, were going down, uh, interest rates were very, very high. Uh, farmers were going under almost every day. It was a pretty miserable time in our economy out there in the Midwest. So um, the decision was made to run. Uh, a guy by the name of Tom Harkin had been in the seat. He was going to run for the Senate. He was pretty much to the left in most of these things. And uh, all the years I'd been in broadcasting, I did all I could to stay right in the middle of the road and not be partial in what I put on the air. We were still back in the old days of the what, why, when, where, and how, rather than what we've got today. 
<laughs> and it uh, some of the things he was doing had started me to thinking about maybe move toward the political thing. And it was a an experience with uh, actually with uh, President Reagan when uh, I got invited to go on a trip with him to to Asia when I was still in the radio business. And uh, that's kind of where my political interest started to get, you know, picked a little bit. So anyway, long story short, uh, made made a decision to run. We had no money. Uh, I was working at a radio station. They don't pay anything to start with. Uh, my wife had just opened up a, a lingerie store, so we had a little bit of income to go on. But we did it the old-fashioned way, kind of with a book. And our we raised about $260,000, if I remember right. And the average contribution was 17 bucks. Uh, I had one check for $100. Everything else was less. But it was that old thing. If you buy a ticket, they ride the train. And they sure enough did. And we won the election. And as you know, Pete, I was there for 12 years. And then I left on my own because I believe in term limits. I think that's one of the big problems we've got today, that there's too many members of Congress from both political parties that should have been somewhere on a sailboat a long, long time ago. And that's I think that adds to the problem. It's not that they're bad people, but I think their eye gets off the ball. And... To me, it's the important is when I went in, it was God, country, family, community, then yourself. And today, I think that yourself has gotten moved up to the top of that list. And that's one of the problems we have that too many things are done for purely political reasons rather than for any kind of, of rationale behind them. It's just to get reelected. So that's part of it. The other thing, back when in the old days, as <laughs> I guess we can call them, uh, I've ridden this old rock called Earth around the sun about 83, going on 84 times. So uh, I can look back and say the old days. And it's really scary when you see things that you grew up with in the antique store. But anyway, uh, in those days, we were what they called a loyal opposition. And we were Americans first, Republicans, Democrats second. And we would sit down and talk about issues. And my belief has always been, and it still is, if you two guys disagree with me on the subject, that doesn't mean you're bad people. This means we disagree on something. We can still be friends. And probably if the three of us sit down and talk about something, there's going to be a little bit of good comes from the three of us, and we'll end up with a better product than we started out with. Now, and that's that's, that's always been my rationale. That's the way I worked when I was in Congress. And I think, Pete, you can verify that because uh, that's how we work together. You but, know, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, Jim, I, I, I one memory that I, that I have is is when I was there um, during the period I, I was in legislative affairs. Your committee uh, uh, changed changed parties, changed right. party leaders. When when I first started, 
I, I believe that um, you were the um, ranking minority member and Steny Hoyer was the chairman. That's correct. And, and I'll never forget at the opening when, when, uh, when Hoyer would, would open up the, uh, the hearing, uh, he would be very deferential to you. You would be very deferential to him. And, and you both expressed um, uh, that you enjoyed working together. Then, we did. Uh, and, and then I remember when it switched the other way and you became the chair and, and he became the, the ranking member. Um, you really dumped on him. No, I'm only kidding. No, you, <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you it, it continued. And, and now, and, 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 and this working relationship and this, this ability to exchange a, a term that, that, um, that Hoyer would always use was comedy. He said there was yeah. comedy in, in this committee. And I had to look that up because I thought he was talking about like Saturday Night Live comedy, but it was a, a, a different word. It's spelled a different way. Yeah, there, there, yeah, there, there you go. So anyway, t- tell us about tell tell us some interesting stories about working on the committee and especially funding ATF. Well, uh, you mentioned Steny. Uh, he and I got along very well. Uh, we were friends. And when I became chairman, one of the first things I did, what they had always done, this was just practice. This is what the Democrats said. They, they'd been in charge since Eisenhower was president and uh, had been in a long time. And they had, had set a lot of rules and they most of them weren't good for those of us in the minority. But there were good members like Stenny or good members like Jim Howard uh, from New Jersey and, and some others that we can talk about later if you want to. But one of the things that had always happened was that the majority party, in this case the Democrats, they would put the ATF bill together on the spending and so on. And then after they had it all done, they would give it to my staff, which was less than theirs, less a fewer number of people, I mean, than their staff. And then my staff had to go through it. And then if there was something we liked or we wanted, we'd go back. And, and that was one thing standing was always open to, to discuss new things. And when I took over as chairman, uh, first thing I did was, uh, as you remember, Michelle Merdeza, who you had on your program here, uh, I talked, looked at Michelle and I said, you know, why are we wasting all this time putting bills together and then working them out together? Why don't we just do it all at the same time? And so I called all of the staff members in from both uh, minority side, Stanley side, and from our side. They sit down and they worked a bill out together. And uh, I think we got a better product. Uh, people were more understanding. Uh, nobody got their throats cut. And everybody worked together. And to me, uh, from what I hear anyway, that's totally missing on the Hill anymore. And I think that's what George and Tom and the boys that got together a couple hundred years ago and, and put this great country together, that that's what they had in mind, that people with with different ideas would get together and do something for the common good of the country. Uh, the country had to be number one. And 
I I don't think it's number one anymore with, with so many people. But irregardless, uh, stories with Steny. Oh my gosh, we uh, uh, we work together so well that I really don't have any bad ones to tell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we we you know we work fine and and uh, uh, we really never had any problems and. Uh, when we went to conference, uh, Dennis DeConcini, a Democrat from uh, a senator from Arizona, was the chairman on the Senate side. And we worked all of our issues out with the Senate. And we had a, you know, had a very good session. We worked them out. Uh, Dennis had a, a staffer named Patty, and she had something she kept wanting to get in and and she was starting to get nervous because, you know, the conversation was going on. All of us were there in the room. And finally, we, we got down to the end of it. And I said, okay, Patty, I'm just going to put your thing in. I don't remember what it was now. And I said, we're just going to put your thing in. And she looked at me with the most surprised look on her face <laughs> that I've ever seen from anybody. But that's the way we work together. And and Dennis, today, I got an email from him this afternoon. We, we've been friends ever since and still are. We disagree on stuff, but that's kind of the way it's supposed to be. But so, there's, a, there's, a rumor, yeah, though, there's a rumor, though, that um, when you'd walk into a hearing, sometimes you was, you were wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> <laughs> you heard that story, didn't you? Yeah, it was our first. Okay, God, let's get this in, in, in context. Uh, this all happened about the time Waco went down. And uh, Steve Higgins, who was the director of the ATF at that time, uh, a really nice guy. And Steve and I are still friends. We still swap emails. And he was in my office for, I don't remember what it was for, and he gets this phone call. And I heard him, and it was from uh, the, the guy that was a commander on the ground in Waco. And I heard Steve with my own ears tell this guy twice, if there's any indication that the Davidians know you guys are there, said, wrap it up and come home, as I mean now. And he said it twice. And as we know, they that didn't happen. We got, what, five agents killed and all the rest of it. But this was right when the Waco thing was going on. Everybody in the world hated ATF. Uh, there was a lot of furor going over, on over this whole thing. Your budget had been just whittled down to almost nothing uh, because anybody that that's kind of anti-gun, I guess, they, they battered on you guys and, and beat you down, and the budget went with it. So we had some real catching up to do. Then to top that all off with the change in, in – uh, majority party to the Republican party, Newt Gingrich, who was a speaker then had put the word out that he wanted a 10% cut in everything. He didn't care what it was. And uh, we had to be able to show him we had a 10% cut. So here we are with the budget that's already decimated and we've got to cut at 10% and you got an agency that's trying to recover from, from real debacle. Uh, as you know, Pete, John McGough, who had been 12 years with uh, the Secret Service, uh, 
came over, was named as the new director. And uh, John and I got along very well. And we had that, uh, that first hearing. And I thought, well, let's try something different. And I found that room over in the Cannon building that was available. And we, you know, kind of set up that little dog and pony show where I had you guys bring in, uh, I knew all of you had materials where you went to schools and so on. So I knew, you know, putting up a, a demo was not going to be that difficult of a thing. And so each of you brought in a demonstration of some kind, Secret Service brought in theirs and, and, uh, and so on down the line, Customs, which was under the committee at that time. And, uh, of course, you brought in Charlie, the drug-sniffing dog, which was always named Charlie. found out she was female. Uh, and I guess there's some females named Charlie. Anyway, uh, at that hearing, I remember McGaugh said, and as you know, Pete, one of the issues was, you know, vehicles and your Pete, your machine, your equipment was worn out, a lot of it and so on. And McGaugh made the comment. He said, Mr. Chairman, he said, I don't know how much you're going to give me. But he said, when we're done, I'm going to have one new car with four new tires with a tank full of gas and a trained agent behind a wheel. And that's what he did. And now the secret for how we got into money, uh, I was able to show uh, Gingrich that I had cut your budget 10% from what it was the prior year. But Michelle and, and a guy named Bill DeRee, who was also one of my staffers, they went on a money search. And we found this uh, thing called Revenues Foregone which the White House had control of it at that time. And this was a fund that had, I don't remember the number, it was quite a few million dollars in it. And the money had been acquired by uh, the forfeiture of boats and airplanes and cars and you name it uh, from, from people trying to sell illicit drugs and so on. So that's how we made up the difference. And you actually ended up with a budget was, was quite a bit more than I think ATF had had in quite a while. And, and John used it wisely and uh, and got the the Bureau back on his feet and, and doing well. At least that was a perspective from my angle. Uh, of course, Pete, you, uh, you and Charlie uh, got to me, and uh, we put together uh, the idea and then the funding for the ATF's drug training unit, which is, I guess, one of the premier units in the world now. Uh, they're training dogs from all over the world. And, uh, you know, I've people get out of Congress, they get their names put on bridges and buildings and one thing or another. But if anybody ever put my name on anything other than a sewage plant, which is probably what I would get, uh, that dog training facility would be it because I – I'm pretty proud of that. I think Pete, you and I did a hell of a job there. Just to be blunt, uh, you had the idea, and uh, I found the money, and and it worked. You know, I, I, actually, it wasn't even my idea. That uh, the, uh, the the folks that ran the explosive detection canine program, 
would come in my office every day saying, we need a training center. We need a training center. Customs has a training center. We need a training center. So I said, well, let me see if I could convince Lightfoot into getting <laughs> us a training center. And I almost lost my job over that, but I'm not even going to go into it. But um, Georgie, where are you, man? Help me out here. <laughs> well, it worked anyway, Pete. Yeah, it, it did. That, that it did, and I'm proud of it. And I would have been happy to lose my job over it if it push yeah. came to shove. Yep, it was a good deal. So, George, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Uh, you weren't a career politician before you got into politics, and then you know you you voluntarily you know left office, but. What did you do um, in those uh, pre-Congress years that that you think prepared you uh, to be able to work with people across uh, the different aisles like that? I, I know you had time as a police officer. I know you had time in the military. What was there any any training or education um, along the way that uh, that kind of helped you navigate those waters? I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Well, George, I think probably the quickest way to answer that is uh, I spent nearly 19 years uh, as a radio broadcaster, and I basically did farm news. And that was a, a profession where you met a lot of people. And one of the big mistakes today, well, it was back then, too, but you watch an interview on TV, on listen one on the radio, whatever. If the person doing the interview just keeps talking, that's not an interview. Uh, a good interview is you ask the person you're talking to a question, then you shut up and listen to what they have to say. And maybe your next question comes from what they say, or maybe it comes from what you have in mind. And I think that gave me a lot of experience, I guess would be the best word to use, and being able to work with people who all different opinions and ideas and so on, and try to get the best out of them. And what I saw from doing that was that many times people who were in disagreement with each other, if you worked with them a little bit, there was a lot of good from both of them. And uh, so I think that George probably had as much to do as do with as anything, as far as any kind of professional training uh, specifically aimed at that. And nope, I, I never had any. Just, just, uh, just talking to people. I think had had as much to do with it as anything. Co common sense and good judgment. Yeah, that that's that's what I was going to say. It's the the school of common sense and and. Uh... It, it's almost like common sense has become a uh, superpower now. Um, Jim, um, as, as we've gone on since, since you left Congress, a bunch of major things have happened. Um, in, in your opinion, like the, the you know, movement of ATF from uh, Treasury over to Justice, which happened while I was a, a, still a pretty junior agent, um, that kind of a big reshuffling of government, what what would something like that do for the committee members who now have to make sense of the the, the new governmental system? 
Well, uh, to start with, I think it was a huge mistake. Uh, I don't think it should ever have been done. Uh, but for the people that are that are working with it, you got to learn a whole new agency. You know what's how does DOJ operate? How what's their opinions? Uh, how do they function, and so on, and that's certainly a lot different than the way the treasury department worked. Right. Uh, you could, uh, uh, the secretary of the treasury, uh, you could pick up the phone and call him and there was no problem. And he, he called me at nights a couple of times just for something that, that he was concerned about. So you lose that. And that is a huge thing. Uh, and I think one of the problems that that law enforcement in general faces is if it's not involved with a agency or group that controls them, that understands law enforcement to start with, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Uh, and not, because, not on purpose, but just because people don't understand each other and don't understand what it means, what this means, what that means, and so on. And, um, yeah, to, to answer your question, it, it's a whole re-education process for, for the staff in particular, as well as, as the member, uh, when something like that happens. And an, another quick example that uh, when, when 9-11 hit and they ended up, you know, forming... Homeland Security and all this and that and the other. Uh, I don't know, Pete, you were around then, but that whole thing could have been done by getting about a group of 10 people or less together and say, okay, guys, share your doggone information. Cause that was one of the big issues back then. Each agency was very particular about wanting not or not wanting to share information with the next one. That's kind of the way it was in those days. And had that information been shared, I think that uh, 9-11 might have even been prevented, but it wasn't. And uh, rather than create a whole brand new agency with, you know, thousands of people and millions or billions of dollars of cost each year, I think a lot of that could have been done if they just put about 10 people from in an office from all the different, all the different agencies and said, okay, guys, uh, you're going to start sharing your information now and we'll see what comes out of this. And because I think, you know, law enforcement works together pretty well and, uh, ATF in particular is, uh, extremely popular, I guess, for the lack of a better word. With, with local, local law enforcement out here in the country, because you guys are always there to help. You're always there. Uh, FBI, now, well, you know, they kind of, they kind of want to come in and take everything over and, and run it. Uh, but they do help. Uh, and it's just, it's just a matter of, of cooperation that, that, that we need to have. And, and I think, again, back to your question is that 
that understanding thing. If you had to boil it down to one thing, it's understanding. Do all the people involved in the process understand what everybody else is going through? If you don't do that, you're not going to do a very good job. I mean, it's just like running a company. If you don't understand what your employees are doing, you're going to have a lot of trouble. You know, Jimmy, you, you mentioned uh, sh- sharing sharing information. And we, we talked a minute ago about a very innovative thing you're proud of that uh, you played a big role in, in terms of the um, ATF Explosive Detection Canine uh, Program and Training Center. But you were involved in, in another another innovative uh, information sharing program that I don't know if a lot of people know that you played such a, a foundational role in, and that was the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, NIBIN. And uh, maybe you might want to talk about that for a second. Well, that, uh, I think probably one of the first things that, that, uh, I'll go back to to that first committee hearing uh, that I held when uh, Director McGall was there and so on, and you brought Charlie and so on. Uh, the folks from Forensic Technology were there at that meeting, and or our, our yeah, our our hearing, I guess I should say, or a little the, carnival. What are you little car- Carnival, right? I like that. Yeah, it was a, kind of a little carnival. You, know, you know, we didn't have any cotton candy, but we did all right. Uh, but uh, Bob Walsh was there and with a demonstration of, of how their system worked. And at the time, uh, FBI had uh, this thing they called drug fire. And the government was basically funding both systems. And again, this came down from Newt's office that, hey, we're going to do one of these, not two. So uh, there had to be something worked out between the two. And I ended up after, I'm trying to think, Pete, I think it was after I left Congress that I spent time with Bob Siebert and uh, uh, I can't remember the other man's name. He used to work for Apple. Uh, Anyway, worked with those guys and worked out the agreement between FBI and, and ATF to go with, with, uh, the, uh, IBIS system and take the good parts out of the FBI system and, and put it in it. And Frank, Frank Sauer, Frank Sauer, Frank Sauer, you bet. That's the man's name. He'd been vice president and a lot of other, he, I think his wife worked for the FBI, if I remember right. Uh, but I don't remember what I had for breakfast. I reached that age. She, she did. She did. Yeah. She, I think she, yeah, she was an FBI person. But um, uh, putting that together, I didn't realize at the time what that was going to turn into. Uh, I knew that getting a database of bullets and cartridge cases recovered from crime scenes have been examined and put into a, a kind of a database that was 
easy to access and you could make comparisons with many hundreds of, of examples if you wanted to. But that just seemed to me was a, was a heck of a good way uh, to help solve cold cases, if nothing else, and perhaps uh, a hot case to solve it quicker than, than you would otherwise. So, uh, Nibin was sort of in its infancy at that point in time. And we got some more money for it, as I recall. And they got, uh, had the money to, to build it and do it properly. And that, you know, it had its ups and downs. And we had some ruts in the road that we went through. And Pete, you and I went through several of them after both of us were working for FTI after you retired and I was out looking for a job. And uh, as you know, we hit, <laughs> we, we jumped a couple of, of crevices there to, to make the darn thing work. Uh, but uh, the Nyman program, I think is one of the best things that's come along uh, in law enforcement and maybe it's history. Uh, it's developed rather quickly now I think they're in what 52 or three countries around the world or maybe more. Uh, and I recall when Pete, when you and I went to Lyon, France and, and talked with Ron Noble about putting it into Interpol. And again, as he explained it, the same issue we had with nine 11, uh, the 80 some countries of Interpol just weren't real whippy about sharing their information with the other countries. And, but anyway, Nova worked that out. And I guess what, they've got their own database now, but, uh, uh, IBIS was a technology that, that was way ahead of its time. It seems like it's a crime to me that it can't be admitted and admissible. Excuse me. I used to be in radio. Uh, it's not admissible in court. You still got to go with the old comparison microscope, which that started what 1920 at the St. Valentine's day massacre was the first, uh, little identification. It was a gun and matched it up with a gun. Uh, and it's to me, that's, that's antiquated. Uh, especially now with the system that does what 3d and, you know, yeah. I, I think, I think Jim, with the three D improvements, I, I think you'll see that change. Uh, it's starting to change in other countries around the world, where the high definition monitors, the high definition uh, uh, algorithms that they have now, and um, and and visual high definition visualization. Um, they're able to do more on the screen of the system itself. And I think you'll see that probably in our lifetime, they'll be using the electronics instead of the old microscope. Speak for yourself about lifetime, kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> but um, no, I, 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 I appreciate that. I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right from what. Let's see. I left Congress and. 90 what six i guess it was and if you compare what was going on in 96 with this kind of technology and what it's doing today 
And now we're in this phase of where technology jumps ahead so rapidly. Big steps, not little steps, but big steps. Uh, you know, this this thing's going to be singing you a lullaby after supper before long after yeah. it gives you your match. But uh, uh, it's, I had, I see no reason. I'm not a lawyer, but I see no reason that, that uh, what's gained from uh, the IBIS system, that that match should not, should be admissible in court. Uh, it's, it just makes sense to me. And, and it takes, you know, the firings examiners, that's, that's a matter of opinion. Uh, they've got to basically in their own heart know that, yes, these two, these two match, these two bullets match, or these two cartridge cages match. But with, as you say, the high definition stuff, they're seeing stuff now that, uh, that the examiners can't see with the right. comparison microscope. And uh, with the ability to do that, uh, you know, why not take it to court? If I, was a, if I was a lawyer, I would sure like to have it if I was trying to prosecute a case. Not only that, there, the, the technology is actually taking measurements of the unique surface areas and tiny peaks and valleys on the, uh, on the marks, and uh, they're actually capturing um, measurements down to the uh, nanometer level, but let's hear from George. I know, I know George is sitting on a couple of questions, and just uh, raring to go here. This is super interesting for me because, um, uh, as Pete knows, uh, I'm a huge history buff, and here I have literally, and I don't mean this in in any way disrespectful. I'm in awe. Uh, of listening to the living history of, you know, what happened in my agency when I was a, a, a young agent. And um, so uh, it's just fascinating to listen uh, to you guys converse. So, Jim, one of the things that uh, strikes me is that, um, you know, very early on, you saw the value of this, um technology that's IBIS and NIBIN, uh, and we've moved it, you know, in the last several years from being a forensic tool to being an investigative tool, which I think was amazing. But um, one of the things uh, I'd like to ask you about is how do you look at an idea um, and understand or form a vision about that? Because looking at a piece of technology like IBIS and, and Niven, some people will look at it uh, and just go, okay, that's neat. What's it gonna do? But it, it seems like you even had the, the ability to see where that was gonna go. How important is vision for for you as as a leader? Oh, I think it's, it's critical. Uh, you talk about technology, George. I had, the first job I ever had was after I got out of the Army, was a customer engineer for IBM. And it was in Omaha, Nebraska. And the whole sixth floor, if I remember right, sixth or the seventh floor, a mutual Omaha insurance company was all computers. And that was in the days when they were the, the cases with the, the magnetic tapes and, and so on and so on. Uh, my wristwatch now will do 20 times more than what that computer would do. And 
I've always been kind of a techie nut. So uh, I, I follow this stuff as it goes along. But you're absolutely right. If you got to have vision, know where you're going. Uh, you got to have a, a, a path of where you're going to go. Uh, I uh, Maybe this isn't the best analogy in the world, but uh, along the way, I picked up commercial flight instructor ratings and and uh, twin engine and flight instructor and all the rest of it. But if you go on a long trip, you file a flight plan and that tells you where you're going to go. And it tells the FAA where you're going to go. But without knowing where that route is going to take you, uh, what do you do? How, I mean, how do you start out on anything without a vision for what you think it can be or where it possibly can go. And will you always hit it on the head? Heck no. There's a lot of times that uh, that road you're on takes a turn in it or it gets a, gets a fork in it and you got to decide which side to take. But if you don't try, you're never going to get anywhere. And just uh, pops into mind. Look at guys like uh, Elon Musk and, he's got all the money in the world to do what he wants to do but the visions he's had and the things that he's done and the whole thing with the space thing and now you know he's got this space rocket that will take people up to the uh, the night uh, or the international space center and uh, the main booster part when it breaks loose uh, it comes back and lands where it took off from and it doesn't fall in the ocean and <laughs> become i guess a fish habitat, what's the old ones used to do. So vision is what makes it work. And, and you're, you got it right on the money, uh, without vision, uh, you're, you're not going to go anywhere. So Jim, you know, today we, uh, we turn on, uh, C-SPAN and, and, and we see hearings and, one member's yelling across the aisle at another member and they're shouting and, uh, and, and, and screaming at, at uh, the president, uh, the state of the union. What, what message as we, as we come to close here, if you had the opportunity to speak to the members of Congress today, what would you tell them? I think the first thing I'd tell them is, uh, okay, you guys, it's about time you become ladies and gentlemen and settle down and show respect for each other and respect for our country and put our country number one before your own political interests, whether it's power or whatever it is. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that's missing, Pete. A, a quick story here, if I got a few minutes that that uh, go ahead, go ahead. We do go ahead. Okay, I was a public works and transportation committee, uh, and it was pretty fairly divided. Uh, and uh, Jim Howard was the chairman, and Jim was from New Jersey. But we used to have this thing that uh, was called a royal order of the raccoons, <laughs> and we'd meet once a month in one of those old row houses up there by. Uh, uh, the Capitol building was owned by uh, uh, well, Northern Norfolk and Southern Railroad, I think, owned it. Can't do it today. It's illegal, but then it was legal. 
And the whole gist of the thing was it was members only, and the prize of admission was to tell a joke. And we had some members that couldn't tell a joke, but the fact they couldn't tell a joke was probably funnier than the joke they tried to tell. So we'd get together, and we're split pretty much half and half Republicans and Democrats. And there was about 50 of us that went to this thing. But at the end of the evening, you knew the guy sitting next to you. You knew about his kids. You knew about his mother that was sick. You, you knew about his aunt was in a wreck. You knew about, you know, the, the nephew that got the great award college and this and that and the other. And instead of congressmen, uh, they were people and you got to know each other. And that's to me is one of the, the big things that is wrong on Capitol Hill. There's not enough time to do that. And there's very little of it, but the next day in committee, uh, you'd argue like hell over whether the bridge ought to be red or it ought to be blue. And you'd probably end up deciding it ought to be gray. Uh, but when it was all over with, you went out to lunch together because you argued about the issue. You didn't argue about each other. It was never about, it never got personal. It was always the issue. And uh, another quick example, I think, talking about public works, uh, Jim Howard is a, was a chairman, and I was new on the committee. And uh, Gene uh, Thompson, no, not Thompson. Snyder, Gene Snyder from Texas, or Texas, from uh, uh, Tennessee. Yeah, Gene was in Tennessee, I think. Anyway, uh, he kind of took me under his wing and was my mentor on the committee. And one of the things he told me was that uh, just be careful. He says the chairman keeps track of how you vote, and that'll have some implications down the road somewhere. So, it was a vote to repeal the 55 mile an hour speed limit. And Jim Howard was pretty much the father of the 55 mile an hour speed limit. And he was our chairman. And so the vote came up and, and I was nervous. I was green. I think, you know, it was like my second term or something like that. And uh, so I saw him, he was down in the well and I thought, what the heck? So I just went down and I said, Mr. Chairman, I said, I realize that, that this is, really near and dear to your heart. But I said, out where I live, it's a long way between trees. And we think 55 is just a little bit too slow. And I kind of waited for a reaction. He reached his piece of arm around me. And he said, you know, he said, you're a good member. He said, I want you back on the committee. And he says, you don't represent me. He said, you represent your people at home. He said, you vote the way you want on this thing. I said, that's up to you. And from that point on, we got to be friends. I went to one of these fundraisers once, and he came to one of mine. And I still got a T-shirt around here somewhere with his name on it. But unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But that's the way it was then. And I don't see any of that now, Pete. Uh, I'm not there, but I still keep in communication with a number of people that are. And it's just... Instead, the loyal opposition has become the enemy. And we can't get anywhere if both sides are enemies. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big history buff. And, and if you look at history, 
this has happened before. Uh, we're not the first country to have something like this happen to where we've our political system has, has gotten into such disarray it doesn't really work very well. And I've got a lot of concern about where we're going. This isn't what I wanted to leave my kids and grandkids. I'll tell you that. Uh, of course, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the 50s and 60s when it was it was fun. But uh, I guess I've gone a long way around your question. But it there has to be a change in attitude between the two political parties. They got to forget about this dadgum power thing. And who's in charge? Who's got the power? Da, 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 da. And, you know, as they say, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we're seeing that. And how do we get away from it? I honestly don't know. I think the man upstairs is the only one that can, can answer that question. But uh, it's got to change. It really does. And uh, the acrimony between the two sides and, and the lack of understanding or the lack of conversation. And, you know, I had as many Democrat friends, in fact, maybe more than I had Republican friends. And we disagreed on a lot of stuff. But we still went to the members' dining room and had, had lunch together. Uh, I don't know if they do that anymore. Uh, from, you know, what I see from the outside, it probably get in a food fight. But uh, that's what's got to change. How we change it, I don't know. If, if we as John Q. Public can put the pressure on the people that we elect to represent us to to make the change, I think that's the only way it'll get done. And people in both parties are going to have to step up and, and start doing it. That's my political statement for the day. Well, well, Jimmy, you know, I, I, I think that uh, what you said makes a lot of sense. I think it was right from the heart. Um, as we come to a close, I, I hope that uh, a lot of people tune in to this episode and, and listen to what you had to say. But I'm going to turn it over to George for one last shot. And uh, George is a kind of uh, affable fellow. And he'll, <laughs> and, and, and he'll, he'll help us close off on a, on a happy note. I don't know if we'll sing a song or what it'll be, but I'll give it to George and let him, uh, let him close this off. Yeah, no uh, singing. No singing. Yeah. yeah. No, no, nobody wants to hear me sing. Trust me. I, I, don't, even, I, I don't want to hear me sing. Um, Jim, what I found interesting in, in your responses, and, and I've talked to, um, you know, friends of mine that, that I worked with uh, in law enforcement, uh, my friends from uh, my classmates from West Point that, you know, we we all talk about the the current state of of where we are. But I um, I want to get your take on um, how we got there and then maybe how we get back. And, and what I mean by that is the, the birth of the, the 24 hour cable news cycle, the growth of uh, technology in the sense of social media that makes everything uh, immediate up close. So everybody's trying to get that tweet 
get that Instagram blast or post something up on their on their social media site. Um, I believe that's had an impact on on how um, our leaders work together, whether it's in the executive, the congressional, and unfortunately, I think now uh, the judiciary. Do you agree with that? And do you think there's a way to use technology to get us back to that uh, more centered, polite, uh, um, political discourse where where you do talk about the loyal opposition versus the enemy? Quick answer, George, is I totally agree with you. I think social media has contributed a tremendous amount to the divide we have in the country today. And the only thing I can think of to correct that situation, because you can come on with an avatar name, something you make up, and you can just beat the heck out of somebody that you don't know anonymously. And I think that's added so much to a lot of the hatred and the discord and if we could change something in technology, social media isn't going to go away. But uh, let's require all of us to put our real name up. If we're going to attack somebody or express an opinion, which everyone has a right to do, uh, let it be not from whatever, John Q., what's his name? Uh, let it be from Jim Lightfoot or Pete Gagliardi or George. I mean, that makes then I think the person that is making the derogatory comments, they got to stop and think a little bit. And if they've had any raising at all, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do this. This isn't the right thing to do. And uh, with it like it is, you know, you can cuss out anybody and, Basically, nobody knows who you are, and I think that's given given uh, what I want to say free reign to uh, a lot of the discourse that we have. So maybe that's one way that we could cor- correct it, or at least help correct it. I think that uh, a lot of it needs to come from the education of our young people in our schools. You say you went to West Point. I don't know about you, but I do not feel the patriotism is there that used to be uh, when I was was growing up. Uh, That's sort of disappeared, and we need to bring that back, and we need to do it through the schools, and we need to teach our kids our history. And, yes, we've got some bad things in our history, but show me a country that doesn't. Show me a person that doesn't have something wrong. And... The thing that I think people are missing is that you learn from your mistakes. And if you don't learn from your mistakes, you're not going to ever get anywhere. And, uh, you know, making mistakes in a way is a good thing if you learn from it. And uh, it's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I'm not a wise enough man to have uh, – <laughs> have the the, the go-home answer from it, George, but you're right on the money. That's what has to change. Uh, it's, it's attitude. It's how people see things. It's how people view our country as a whole. Uh, 
look how the respect for law enforcement has dropped over the years. Uh, that's attitude. A lot of it's been because of the public square. And again, I think social media has had a lot to do with it. And it just, that's got to come back. I mean, that's, you know, the, the cop in on the street to beat you up or to shoot you or anything else, he's there to keep the peace and enforce the laws it is. And uh, people have to start understanding that rather than it's some kind of a political deal because you got on a uniform and your skin's a certain color. That's That's got a lot to do with it too. And we're seeing a lot of that uh, fan back up again, which it uh, had died down some in the past. And understanding was starting to develop, I think, between particularly between whites and blacks. And there's a lot of understanding between whites and blacks today. But it's that, that fringe element that uh, is always out there to create trouble. And they get all the headlines and pretty soon people start to believe it. You know, you watch that stuff on TV long enough. Best way to feel good is turn the TV off and just leave it that way. <laughs> you, you know, Jim, um, I, I really like your, your, your comment of a few seconds ago on um, using your real name. You want to get on social media. You want to exercise free speech. Be accountable for what you say. Absolutely. And, and, and I hope, uh, you know, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are listening to this and, 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 and take it to heart. You know, I, I, I had a, um, I, I had a nun in the grammar school that would always say to one of us when we were getting out of line, talking in the, in the room, wising off or whatever, she would say, your character is showing. Well, I, I, I think that on social media, if you're anonymous, your real character is never showing, just your perhaps bravado. So, um, again, I, I think that uh, thank you for your time tonight. George, do you have anything to close with? Uh, you know, it's just been an honor uh, to, to listen to uh, to you, Jim, just just, you know, talking to somebody who's been on the inside and has seen – how the sausage gets made um, is, is just to me is fascinating. Uh, so I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, uh, I, I love the history uh, behind what I was doing on the street as a, as a young agent and, and to see where it came from, from Pete Gagliardi up on high and from Congress down to uh, <laughs> down to those of us on the street. That was uh, fascinating for me and I really enjoyed it. So it was a pleasure. Pete well, Gagliardi up on low, you mean, not very yeah, high. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, look, Jim, we're going to close in a second, but if you would st stand by, we're going to bring you back on once we stop recording just to say good night and thank you. All right. So good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Good, <laughs> good evening. <laughs>